Talking history. This is News Talk. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. As one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Aukteroin, Argus, Akoiza. Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. Tonight's show is all about witchcraft and murder as we investigate the notorious Scottish play, William Shakespeare's Macbeth. And we'll be finding out why the story continues to exert such a powerful hold on audiences and readers today. You can email us your thoughts and views, talkinghistory at newstalk.com, and we'd love to hear from you. Last week, we found out about the history of engagement rings, white wedding dresses, and the institution of marriage itself. We also explored the world with Alexis de Tocqueville and debated whether the Irish Magna Carta was a fake. And if you want to listen back to this or to any of our older shows, just go to the News Talk app powered by Go Loud, our website newstalk.com or wherever you download your podcasts. This year marks the 400th anniversary of the first publication of the complete works of William Shakespeare and Ireland's only copy of the first edition is on display in Trinity College Dublin until June as part of an exhibition entitled Shakespeare the Irishman and it inspired us to dedicate tonight's show to exploring one of Shakespeare's greatest tragedies. It's on the Leaving Cert curriculum this year. It is of course the one and only Macbeth. Written around 1606 during the reign of King James I and possibly influenced by the gunpowder plot of a year earlier, Macbeth is a story of political ambition, murder, madness and death. From the prophecies of the witches to the role of Lady Macbeth, it is a story that has intrigued and inspired countless generations. Some actors and theatre companies still prefer to call it the Scottish play out of superstition and there are fears that it brings bad luck. But tonight we're not afraid to call it by its correct name as we discuss and debate the legacy of William Shakespeare's Macbeth. And to help me do this, I'm delighted to be joined by our brilliant panel of experts. Professor Sandra Clark is Professor Emerita of Renaissance Literature at the Institute of English Studies at the University of London and expert on Shakespeare and early modern English literature. She's the author of Shakespeare and Domestic Life, a dictionary and the co-editor of the Arden Shakespeare edition of Macbeth. Dr. Abigail Rokeson Woodall is a senior lecturer in Shakespeare and Theatre at the University of Birmingham and is also Deputy Director of the Shakespeare Institute. A professionally trained actor and an expert on Shakespeare in performance and Shakespeare for young people, her books include Shakespearean Verse Speaking and Shakespeare for Young People. Professor Farah Kareen Cooper is Professor of Shakespeare Studies at King's College London and the Director of Education at Shakespeare's Globe Theatre. An expert on Shakespeare and anti-racism, she's the author of Cosmetics in Shakespearean and Renaissance Drama and her new book, The Great White Bard, Shakespeare, Race and the Future, combines an analysis of race, gender and otherness in the plays of Shakespeare. You're all very welcome and later in the show I'll be joined by Professor Emma Smith, Professor of Shakespeare Studies at Hartford College, Oxford and an expert on Shakespeare's reception in print, performance and criticism. Abigail, I might begin with you and I might begin with a question about the context in which Macbeth was written because we tend to associate Shakespeare with the era of Queen Elizabeth I but of course this is the, the time of a, of a new king, King James I and 
what difference or what change does that have on things? Yes, thank you very much. Um, I'm delighted to be here today. So yes, that's right. I mean, we we often slightly lazily, don't we, talk about um, Shakespeare as writing in the Elizabethan period and sometimes forget that he's also a Jacobean uh, playwright. Um, And of course, that King James became the patron of the theatre company of which Shakespeare was a member. So formerly the Lord Chamberlain's men and then the King's men. Um, I suppose in terms of of how it might influence the the writing of Macbeth, I think um, it's I think it's often been assumed, and maybe slightly lazily, that 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 the play was was simply written to please King James, that it had its first performance at Hampton Court in front of the King, although we don't know that for sure because its first recorded performance isn't until uh, 1611. But yeah, that it that it sets out. To, to flatter King James, to please King James in various ways. Um, but I actually think it's quite a lot more complicated than that, and that actually we're talking about a pretty inflammatory, quite dangerous subject to be writing about at this particular time, as you alluded to in your introduction, you know, um, potentially only a year after the gunpowder plot. Um, so... I think that there are things that we could say about ways in which Shakespeare's writing changes, way, ways in which his um, his writing develops uh, over his career. But also, I think about the way in which um, the plays become perhaps more concerned with ideas of um, rulership and partly um, with some of the more thorny problems of uh, rulership in his in his uh, Jacobean tragedies, and of course James the First of England. Before that, he was James the Sixth of Scotland, and mm-hmm. had a huge interest in witchcraft and witch hunts, yeah. and wrote a treatise about witchcraft. And it, it, do you think that played a part then in influencing Shakespeare to bring some of these elements into the into the play itself? I'm sure it must have done. I mean, um, things that King James was particularly interested in and concerned by, as you say, witchcraft. Um, he had, um, he basically, he'd written this treatise um, called uh, Demonology. And he had been involved in some really quite brutal witch trials. I mean, famously, the, the North Berwick witch hunt, which led to I mean, the arrest and torture of a lot of, of women, you know, somewhere around 60 or so uh, women. Um, and he was fascinated by witchcraft because he became increasingly convinced that um, that witches had uh, attempted, made an attempt on his life when he was returning from Denmark after his, after his wedding. He was also fascinated by what we call the divine right of kings. So the rights and duties of kings. He wrote um, a number of pamphlets, um, the true law of free monarchies, um, Basilican Doran. Um, so one of the things he was really feverishly trying to advocate for was that the, the, the king was God's representative on the earth and that to depose a king um, or were still to to kill a king, even a bad king, was a sin against God. And, you know, we see both of those themes intimately bound together in the play of Macbeth. 
Sandra, how important is the supernatural in the story? Because on the one hand, it's it's central to it. You have the witches, you have a phantom dagger appearing, the ghost of Banquo, you have, you have all of these uh, supernatural elements in it. But I suppose you could also read it in terms of, a, of being a psychological study and one man's descent into madness and that perhaps uh, that's even more significant than the supernatural elements. Yes, I think supernatural element is a bit of a problem. The representation of uh, witches on stage is often very difficult in productions, but it does seem to me, particularly as the play kicks off, that the supernatural atmosphere created by the witches in the first scene is very important, and the way in which they appear to both Macbeth and Banquo in the third scene Uh, with their predictions of the future, something that they appear to know about, they have knowledge that uh, mortal men do not have. Um, This this does seem to me uh, a vital element in the play in the sense that it spurs Macbeth on. There are other reasons Macbeth behaves as he does, but the prospect open to him by the witches at the beginning from being Thane of Glamis to Thane of Cawdor to King hereafter, is extremely attractive to him. I do think that the supernatural element uh, is of great importance in the play, uh, and of course the way in which the witches seem somehow or other to be uh, connected with Lady Macbeth, I think is another aspect of this. And Farah, I was reading your new book, The Great White Bard, and the first thing that really surprised me was that the whole idea of Shakespeare as the bard is something that uh, is a much later invention. It wasn't that people in his own lifetime were calling him the bard. Uh, Yeah, that's correct. Uh, That's correct. If you fast forward about 150 years um, after Shakespeare dies, you find that there's a very different Shakespeare that emerges than the one that was sort of writing the plays in a, a scrappy theatre industry. And there's all these different elements to the play Macbeth that, you know, elements to do with race and with kinship, with lineage, uh, and, and, and the witches tie into all of that. How do you approach the play? Um, well, it, from, from this angle, um, I, I sort of took a concept uh, coined by Karen E. Fields and Barbara J. Fields, uh, which is the term racecraft. And that sort of refers to a system of beliefs about race that's been created over a long period. So it kind of creates a sort of um, conspiracy uh, mindset, as it were. Um, and uh, witchcraft operated in, the ver- in, in very similar ways, which is why they use the term racecraft. Um, and you can see that kind of conspiratorial kind of thinking um, influencing Shakespeare's play and it's happening in the play itself. Um, so I, I sort of combine those two elements in order to think about how we're still very much um, uh, plagued by that kind of conspiratorial thinking, whether it comes to race or misogyny. And and it ties into the idea of scapegoating a, a, a particular group and making them responsible for all of society's problems. Yes, absolutely. And that's fundamentally what witches were. And it was really interesting what Abigail was saying about uh, James's sort of obsession with with witches at the time. He was very much convinced that they were out to get him. Um, and the things that did happen to his ship <laughs> at sea 
uh, was uh, he sort of blamed it on witches very frantically after having spent quite a bit of time in Denmark with astrologers and astronomers and people who studied the occult and kind of convinced him that these um, these forces were out there. Sandra, the character of Lady Macbeth, it's one of Shakespeare's, she's one of Shakespeare's greatest ever characters and uh, has inspired so many throughout the centuries. But I suppose for a modern audience or if it was being written today, uh, there'd be criticisms in the way that uh, she's the instigator of, of, of the evil that her husband does and spurring him on. And you even see it in journalism. If you have the wife of, a, of an ambitious politician, she's sometimes described as a Lady Macbeth. So I suppose there are there are some concerns with her characterization as well. Yes, certainly Lady Macbeth. The Lady Macbeth idea has been frequently as demonizing powerful women. And Lady Macbeth in the play is has a great deal of responsibility in getting Macbeth to act as he does, uh, with her urging him on to become more of a man. And, of course, the appeal to his manliness is the thing that I think eventually makes him decide to go ahead Uh, in in the scene where the murder of Duncan is made public. Is it real faint or is it something uh, that that she she does in order to uh, save her husband's face at a difficult moment? But on the other hand, she does, in a sense, get her comeuppance in play in the great scene in Act 5 of the sleepwalking and the madness, the control that she tried to exercise has broken down. Here's a spot. She speaks. Out. Damn spot out, I say. Well, then, it is time to do it. Hell. Is murky. Fie, my lord, fie. A soldier and a feared. What need we fear? Who knows it? When none can call our power to a court. Yet who would have thought the old man to have had so much blood in him? Do you mark that? The thane of five had a wife. Where is she now? What will these hands never clean? There is a certain ambivalence about presenting a woman as so powerful that uh, she gets her husband to commit murder. And Abigail, it is an interesting study of masculinity as well. Uh, the way uh, we, we heard there about uh, encouraging him on, you know, discussing uh, his masculinity, screw your courage to the sticking place and we'll not fail, that it's very much uh, making him assert his masculinity to commit the murder. Yes, indeed. I mean, it's a very interesting relationship, isn't it? That relationship between Macbeth and, and Lady Macbeth. Um, it's brilliantly written, the way in which they interact together, the way in which they kind of you know, press each other's buttons, um, even down to the the personal pronouns they use to each other. You know, when she, in that scene where where she suddenly starts saying, if you were a man, um, she suddenly starts using the, the, the personal pronoun thou to him, um, which 
in early modern England, there were there were two personal pronouns, you and thou, much like I guess the the French equivalent of of you and uh, of vous and tu. Um, and when you used thou to somebody, it was kind of it was either to tell them off um, or to talk down to them or to patronize them, or it was used in a kind of sexual way. And the fact that she moves to that, there's so much, you know, having been an actor, trained as an actor, there's so much there that you can do simply with the way in which um, she shifts the personal pronouns that she uses towards him, either in a way that is that is highly kind of sexual or in a way that is deeply patronizing. Um, but either way, yeah, absolutely. She's she's playing on his qualities of, of, of masculinity. And yet, Abigail, it all goes wrong for her that Macbeth yeah. himself transforms himself from being a, a, a brave soldier but an unwilling conspirator into being this ruthless tyrant and, and, and willing to murder whoever it takes as the play goes on. But she has no qualms at the start, but by the end is, is you know, can't live with the guilt, is, is a much weaker figure as the play goes on and a much less significant figure as the play goes on. Yeah, again, I think um, I think this depends, again, on how you choose to play the role, um, whether, she's, whether she's weaker or whether um, she has a better sort of morality um, than, than he does um, in the process of things, whether there are things that she simply draws the line at, whether it's simply the point at which he has the Macduff family, including the children, murdered. That simply that that tips her over the edge. I mean, there have been plenty of productions that have played with the idea of the Macbeth marriage, as it appears in the play, being childless, and what that means to Macbeth and Lady Macbeth. Um, and actually, some of them have played on that idea that it is the point at which um, he has the Macduff family killed, that that she just is tipped over the edge. There's no evidence in the play um, as to when she knows about this at all, but, um, but various productions have certainly played with that possibility. Upon my head, they placed a fruitless crown and put a barren scepter in my grip, thence to be wrenched with an unmanial hand. No son of mine succeeding, if it be so. For Banco's issue have I filed my mind. For them, the gracious Duncan have I murdered, put rancors in the vessel of my peace, only for them, to make them kings. The seed of Banco, kings. What's to be done? innocent of the knowledge, dearest child. Till thou applaud the deed. Full of scorpions is my mind. 
And Farah, what do you think is the really going on then when he's developing all of these different kind of conspiracies within the play and there's the plotting and the uh, leading up to the murder of the king and then all of these revenge. Like it, in some ways, it's almost like a, a modern day Game of Thrones or something, the way you have the killings and the revenge and a, a, a kind of a good character being corrupted as, as the story goes on. Hmm. Yeah, I think the overarching emotion in the play is fear. Um, uh, there's a scholar named Alison Bachman who points out that that's the word that's used the most. Uh, I think it's used something like over 40 times. Um, and guilt, I think, is used only twice. <laughs> there was a, a, a really close connection, though, between fear and guilt. So what what changes Macbeth is the fear that he has. So he expresses great fear. And uh Lady Macbeth in the beginning of the play is is um, sort of challenging this aspect of him, you know, when she refers to him having the milk of human kindness, and then he becomes pale with fear. Um, and and, and it, it, it's sort of the thing that makes him more evil in many ways, because he becomes fearful of losing what he's gained. Um, and that, I think, drives the plot quite significantly. And Sandra, when we look at the witches and we look at the kind of the games that they play and the tricks that they 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 pull in terms of convincing Macbeth that he will achieve this great destiny and that no man of woman born will be able to kill him and you know until Burnham Wood moves to Dunsinane and all of these things that look impossible, but then as we discover, uh, there's there's explanations for how these things are possible. The trees are are used as camouflage and they're mo- and they're cut down and moved, that Macduff was untimely ripped from the, the womb, that it's all built on sand. It's not built on anything substantial or real at all. Yes, this is absolutely true. It actually goes back to that crucial moment at the beginning uh, when he is he's seen the witches uh, and listened to the prophecy. And he says to himself, if chance will have me king, then chance they crown me. Um, you know, it could have all happened anyway if he hadn't done anything. And this seems to me to be the, the kind of bitter, almost, almost comic irony of the fact that he, you know, goes to such lengths to make it all happen. Uh, it's rather a, a need not have done. And, of course, it makes me think also of Oedipus, uh, a man to whom a uh, terrible prophecy uh, was given, who does everything he thinks possible to avoid fulfilling it, but fulfills it anyway. Um, I think the, the whole handling of, of prophecy and its status in the play is extremely interesting. Uh, and of course, adds very much to the feelings of the audience towards that. And Abigail, is that what makes the play such, you know, is that is that the secret behind Shakespeare's genius that you can interpret it in so many ways that you could have 10 different productions of Macbeth this year and that they would all give you a very different type of story, whether the focus is a particular interpretation of Macbeth's character or Lady Macbeth's or how you interpret the witches and their role, that you could actually tell 10 different stories through the play. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's, you know, that's part of um, the 
it's part of the genius of, of Shakespeare, um, Shakespeare's work as a whole, I think. Um, it's one of the reasons that the plays keep being done, because actually I'll never get bored of seeing productions of Macbeth because they're always going to be different. They're always going to have a, a different setting, um, a different take on the characters, a different focus. I mean, the idea that um, even the ending of the play um, and as the play ends, I mean, I've seen productions where um, you know, the play finishes and Malcolm is king and then there's this, as there is in the Polanski film, you know, a postscript where suddenly Donald Bane or Donald Bane's children are creeping back onto the heath to see the witches and you've got this sense of it all beginning again. Um, or Fléance, because after all, Fléance is still alive at the end of the play and Bancor has been promised that his children will be king. So you get a different kind of one in which you suddenly see Fléance coming onto the stage and it's as if the whole thing's going to start again. Um, so yeah, there are just um, there are just so many ways in which to interpret and to do the play. And I guess that means it will never become dull for us. And Sandra, I suppose that is at the heart of it, that uh, there's all these different uh, interpretations you can you can have on it. There's there's different ways that readers and viewers of it uh, can make their own make their own assessment of what's going on. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I fully agree with what's just been said. Um, despite the fact that it seems to be a play uh, very much anchored to a particular point in time, i.e. Um, the succession to the English throne of the Scottish king, nonetheless, it seems to me that it offers us so many different ways of interpreting what happens. And indeed, the way in which the ending has been rendered as a kind of uh, threatening cycle starting up again, often with witches reappearing at the end as they do in Polanski's old film, for instance, Uh, different ways of seeing Macbeth. Is he really a kind of noble hero or is he really, uh, you know, a bloodthirsty villain? Uh, Different interpretations of Lady Macbeth. Um, ways in which the play can be set in different historical periods. For instance, uh, the production with uh, Patrick Stewart as Macbeth set in the, in the Cold War. Is this a dagger which I see before me? The handle toward my hand. Come. Let me clutch thee. I have thee not, and yet I see thee still. Art thou not fatal vision sensible to feeling as to sight? Or art thou but a dagger of the mind, a false creation proceeding from the heat-oppressed brain? I see thee yet. Thou marshalest me the way that I was going, and such an instrument I was to use. (laughs) Mine eyes are made the fools of the other senses. 
or worth all the rest? I see thee still. And on thy blade and dungeon, gouts of blood that was not so before. business which informs thus to mine eyes. Now, or the one-half world, nature seems dead. Um, it seems to me a really extraordinary play in, in the way that it is so open and so endlessly re-readable. Okay, well, tonight we are talking about William Shakespeare's Macbeth. We are going to take a quick break now. When we come back, I'll be talking to Professor Emma Smith about the gunpowder plot and how it may have impacted on the plot of Macbeth. So stay with us here on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. Tonight we are debating the history of Macbeth and looking at its impact as one of Shakespeare's greatest tragedies. I'm delighted to be joined now by Professor Emma Smith, Professor of Shakespeare Studies at Hartford College, Oxford, an expert on Shakespeare's reception in print performance and criticism. Her books include This is Shakespeare, How to Read the World's Greatest Playwright, as well as Portable Magic, A History of Books and Their Readers. Emma, you're very welcome. And I want to go straight into the idea of terrorism and the idea of the gunpowder plot, because I studied uh, Macbeth in school many, many years ago, but uh, it wasn't a, a factor, I think, that I'd, 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 I'd thought about, the fact that you did have this gunpowder plot against the king in 1605, and then uh, pretty much around the same time that Shakespeare was working on, on Macbeth. Yeah, I think this is a completely fantastic context for thinking about Macbeth. Um, the whole of you know e- English culture is thinking about um, the threat to the king, this uh, this threat by uh, by Catholics to uh, assassinate the king at Parliament in this big explosion, uh, which, as you say, happens in November 1605. There's a kind of show trial of those involved early in 1606, um, and I think what Shakespeare Uh, takes from this is something actually that's still quite remarkable. Instead of um, feeling uh, repelled by this or instead of feeling, as we sometimes hear now, you know, you shouldn't try to understand the mind of people who who want to take these kinds of actions. He goes right in. He thinks, you know, what's it like to be someone who wants to kill the king? Psychology of guilt and, and and. and so on, that that troubles that person. So instead of the judgment that is such a thing about English culture, you know, string them up, really, you know, hang these people um, who've made this outrage, attempted this outrage. Shakespeare is really, I don't think he's condoning it, but he really wants to go there and see what it's like to be in the mind of that person. And this is a time then of fear and paranoia, and you very much see that fear and paranoia in the play then as well. It's a small conspiracy between Lady Macbeth and Macbeth, but it's the same kind of thing, overthrowing a king, establishing a new order. And there is that that uh, that sense of paranoia and, and fear and, and, the, and the mystery and shadow pervading the entire play. Yeah, completely. And one of the things I've been thinking about just recently is the fact that this play starts with the amazing amazing stage direction thunder and lightning enter three witches you think actually if you if you know other shakespeare plays you might know they sort of come in 
little bit more quietly, a little bit of a sideways look at what's going on. Some some people argue that there's a bit of leeway for latecomers. You know, you don't start with the most important thing. You don't start with the central character, for instance. But this is a play which really literally starts with a bang. Thunder in the theatre, which was made with a probably with a, a sort of metal ball rolling through the wooden timbers and so reverberating through that kind of wooden O of the playhouse. That must have been one of the loudest noises before amplified sounds that London has ever ever heard or ever heard close up. It must have been uh, a real uh, shock to start with. And you know that slightly queasy, adrenaline-y feeling you get after a shock like that. I feel as if it's there's no coincidence that the play sets us, the audience, off in that mode of yeah, anxiety, jumpiness, uh, fret, fretfulness, and we never quite get out of it. So it's a play that where we really experience. It's kind of immersive theatre, you know, before immersive theatre. And is it true that there were these connections between Shakespeare and the plotters, that his father was friends with uh, Catesby, the main plot, his father, that uh, that Shakespeare would have gone to a particular tavern where some of the, the conspirators would have met, that there are those personal connections as well? Most definitely. So a lot of the conspirators are based in Warwickshire, Shakespeare's home county. Um, you know, this is a this is a small world. This is like, uh, at the very least, this is like hearing your old mates from school have been involved in in some you know absolutely world shattering event, um, but probably more more closely uh, than that that there are distant-ish relatives that Shakespeare knows who are really caught up in this conspiracy. So it's not just an abstract uh, thing for him. I think he's he's he is closely. Um, connected, if not, it, he's clearly not implicated, but he's connected. Is there something slightly disappointing in the connection, in that it makes Macbeth a kind of of propaganda to defend the state and to defend the monarchy, that it's a, it, it turns it into a simple message of don't kill the king or terrible things will happen to you and that this is an, an evil thing to do, that it, in a way does it simplify the story? Well, that's a really interesting question. I suppose my sense is that Shakespeare doesn't really uh, judge or doesn't only judge Macbeth. He wants us to kind of experience what it's like to be him. So there's a bit there's a bit less of the them and us, which is often part of a simple propaganda story. You know, the bad people are other people. They're not us. We could never do that. And I think Macbeth has a more complex sense of how um, motives and, you know, decency and positive attributes can be turned and, and twisted. It, in some ways, Macbeth is like living in that dream that perhaps many of us have had, where you have killed someone in in your dream, and it's and you sort of didn't mean to, or you don't quite know how you have done it. And it is you know, absolutely terrible, and you wake up, and it's such a relief. I feel as if the play takes us into that in, into that moment where it could have been us, rather than absolutely erecting that moral, ethical, political boundary between us and and and, and the criminal. So, for me, it's a less moralising a less moralising play than that. And how do you see the, the the portrayal then of Lady Macbeth? Because it's she's a, a villain, a nuanced villain, uh, uh, but not perhaps quite a sympathetic one. 
Yes, I think, I mean, Lady Macbeth's a magnificent part, isn't it? And it, it it's a testimony to the young male actor Shakespeare knew who could embody this this female character in a in a convincing way it's a really interesting uh, piece of writing of a of a mature and as you say an unsympathetic woman um i think uh in some ways that caricature uh, isn't quite what we the, the 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 version we see in the play itself she is more uh, nuanced than that she is in some perverse ways, the ideal wife. I mean, she does exactly what's needed to uh, get her husband's uh, advancement and she never expresses personal uh, ambition or disloyalty uh, to him. So again, um, Shakespeare doesn't do much with married couples. Comedies leave those couples sort of at the altar, as it were. And in tragedies, we usually wash up with, you know, someone like King Lear and we've no idea what happened to the, uh, to the, to the wife. She's, she's done her bit and, and, and is out of the story. But in the Macbeths, we get this folly adder, sort of Bonnie and Clyde kind of uh, partnership, which is, um, you know, re- really emotionally and psychologically uh, vivid, I think, and and um, compelling, uh, and I, and I do think that she is a more interesting character. The question about whether she has lost a child, which one of the uh, most famous and sort of terrifying speeches in the play uh, seems to seems to suggest, I have known what is to give suck, and that you know she would have dashed the brains out of the baby. Whether she's lost a child, that's a very common interpretation now in the theatre to to explain. Um, the, the kind of uh, behaviour that she, she she undertakes. So I mean, I think she's a she's a fantastic character, but the image she has given to actually quite misogynistic commentary on women in public life, I think, is not it, it is not fair to the play itself. And Emma, uh, if the play was written now and performed now for the first time, would there be a problem in terms of gender that here we have brave, noble, uh, masculine Macbeth going around and then suddenly he meets three women who who uh, lead him astray by encouraging him to think of, of his ambition and his future. And then his wife uh, leads him further astray by, uh, by pretty much uh, prodding him into it. And would that be a problem? Well, it is interesting that we're in a period right now in the 2020s where there's lots of really interesting rewriting of Macbeth precisely uh, with that in mind. Um, I'm thinking about uh, Zinni Harris's A Macbeth and Undoing, which was on at the Edinburgh Lyceum earlier this year, really fascinatingly trying to wrest back something from these quite problematic gender politics uh, of the play. I think the play emerges from uh, a, a period of actual um, misogynistic relief, if we can say that, after the age of Elizabeth, after uh, Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth has uh, died, it's no longer necessary for the court to um, be all kind of, you know, suck up to her, uh, technical term there. Uh, And James has come, a male monarch with male heirs. And there's a sense, a slightly regressive sense, I think, in the Jacobean, early Jacobean period, uh, that uh, ideas about women revert to misogynistic stereotypes. So I think Macbeth is a play of its time. And what's fascinating about this and other Shakespeare plays is how we refashion them um, according to what we need. And what we do need right now, as you're suggesting, is, is a play which thinks differently about, about gender stereotyping and gender, gendered power.
Okay, well, my thanks to Professor Emma Smith, Professor of Shakespeare Studies at Hartford College, Oxford, for joining me tonight. We're going to take a quick break now. When we come back, I'll be rejoined by my panel as we talk about Denzel Washington's recent uh, portrayal of Macbeth on screen and lots more besides about the impact and legacy of William Shakespeare's Macbeth. Welcome back. We're talking history and tonight we're talking about William Shakespeare's Macbeth. And I'm delighted to be rejoined by my brilliant panel of experts, Professor Sandra Clark of the Institute of English Studies at the University of London, Dr. Abigail Rokasin Woodall of the University of Birmingham and the Shakespeare Institute, and Professor Farah Kareem Cooper of King's College London and the Director of Education at Shakespeare's Globe Theatre. Farah, there have been two excellent film productions in recent years. You have the one from 2015 with uh, Michael Fassbender uh, playing Macbeth. You have the more recent one from 2021, The Tragedy of Macbeth with Denzel Washington uh, playing Macbeth. I wonder what do you think of the different productions and in particular with the the work you've done on race, what did you make of Denzel Washington's performance? Um, Well, that's a really interesting question because uh, I sort of talk about this a little bit in my book that... um, I think the way Denzel Washington uh, approached it, as he's discussed himself, is to not think about race. Uh, for him, he didn't think that, um, he, I, I suppose he tried to bracket race from the play itself. Ah, so foul and fair a day I have not seen. How far is it to forest? What are these? So withered and so wild in their attire that look not like the inhabitants of the earth and yet are on it. Live you, or are you what that man may question? Speak, if you can. What are you? All hail, Macbeth. Hail to thee, Thane of Glamps. All hail, Macbeth. Hail to thee, Thane of Hodor. All hail, Macbeth. That shall be king hereafter. Are ye fantastical, or that indeed which outwardly ye show? If you can look into the seeds of time and say which grain will grow and which will not, speak then to me, who neither beg nor fear your favour nor your hate. Lesser than Macbeth and greater. Not so happy, yet much happier. Thou shalt get kings, though thou be none. So all hail Macbeth and Banquo, Banquo and Macbeth. All hail. What was really interesting was the response um, on some kind of uh, not very nice faces on the internet to the announcement of his casting. Um, People found it really offensive that uh, a black actor was playing Macbeth, which was really surprising given the caliber of that actor and um, his familiarity. But uh, I think probably if that film had come out 10 years ago or five years ago even, uh, that it probably wouldn't have been as um, dramatic a response to it. Um, I think the film did pretty well. I thought it was a very interesting take uh, on Macbeth. I think the thing that a lot of productions and films tend to do is focus too much, I think, on the supernatural. Because what I take from the play is that the witches are there as really vessels of information. They're not manipulating the drama that I think if, if, if it's interpreted that way, then what that does is it sort of removes quite a bit of accountability from Macbeth himself, you know, and, and really the play is suggesting that the fallibility of humans and the relationship between our own fallibility and our desires um, 
And uh, I think if you have the witches on stage all the time or the witches being this sort of predominant feature in a film, uh, that sort of removes that and it becomes a play about witches. And I think actually they're there just to tell you, uh, to just to tell Macbeth what's happening. And Orson Welles in the 1930s, of course, he did a famous, I think it was a kind of a voodoo Macbeth set in Haiti, where uh, mm-hmm. again, it's an interpretation uh, taking out some of the elements from it. Yes, yes. And that was, I mean, that was a, you can watch bits of that actually on YouTube. It's it's really fascinating. Sandra, I suppose in terms of productions and performances, is there a particular version that is the definitive one for you or the one that you think, whether on stage or on, on screen? Oh, this dates me, but um, the one that will last with me forever is Trevor Nunn's production. Uh, I think in 1976, something like that. Uh, with Ian McKellen and Judy Dench, which was an extremely minimalist production uh, done in a very small space with uh, costumes that had no kind of historical significance at all. Everyone was dressed mainly in, in plain black garments. But the extraordinary magnetism of McKellen and the way in which he acted with Judy Dench is something that will live with me forever, even though uh, the supernatural, which we were just talking about, was rendered entirely of of very simple visual effects, a a swinging light bulb, for instance, to change the lighting and the atmosphere, um, puppet dolls, which were produced for the show of Kings. Nonetheless, the intensity of the performances was quite and the minimalism of the production was something that stood out for me. Abigail, the same question. Do you have a particular uh, favourite? I don't know if I have a particular favourite. I did see Trevor Nunn's production on television and it does does stand out. There are other productions, there are moments of other productions that have really stayed with me. Um, Gregory Doran's RSC production with Anthony Sher and Harriet Walter, the relationship between... Macbeth and Lady Macbeth. Um, but I'll never forget the moment that they did some sort of extraordinary resetting um, with um, using the interval with the ghost of Banquo that made it um, so that one minute we were seeing it from Macbeth's point of view and one minute we were seeing it from everybody else's point of view, i.e. one minute Banquo, the ghost of Banquo was there and the next minute he wasn't. I also remember Michael Boyd's production at the RSC which um, replaced the witches with um, the dead Macduff children who haunted the play and who hung from ropes from the ceiling. And, I mean, that that image will kind of stay with me. So I think it's particular moments from different productions, actually, that have really stayed with me. And it is an accessible play, Abigail. I think it's something that yeah. it is on the, the Leaving Cert curriculum here in Ireland, but it's, it's an, I think, an easier play or it's maybe a more engaging play for 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 students than perhaps uh, some of the other ones in other years like King Lear or or Hamlet which very heavy and you know a lot there whereas Macbeth you're kind of straight into it there's a lot of action it's shorter than the others and there is elements that I think appeal to 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 students more so than perhaps some of the others Absolutely. I mean, um, I've I've been working on a project with the um, RSC on um, called Signing Shakespeare, which is Shakespeare for uh, deaf children, 
We've been going to running workshops in a number of um, schools for deaf children around the country. And whatever age group, they're absolutely gripped by the play because, because you know, witches, battles, you know, you're straight in there with both of those things. And it's very easy to kind of grasp their attention. And I suppose um, before I had a child myself, I'd, I think I'd kind of thought, oh, gosh, I don't think I'd do much better at primary level. I'm not sure that would be suitable for primary school, school children. And now I've got a six-year-old who's kind of obsessed with Jurassic Park and other sort of gory, bloody things. Um, he loves Macbeth. It's his favourite because of, yeah, essentially the fighting and the witches. The fighting and the witches. And of course... yeah. Uh, uh, Farah, would you say the same that there's something about it that then it resonates with audiences in a particular way? Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, we have a project at the Globe called Playing Shakespeare with Deutsche Bank, which is a, a funded production designed and crafted um, specifically for um, young people. And uh, Macbeth appears a lot, obviously, because it's on the curriculum and they absolutely love it. Um, I think that Abigail's right. There is something about gore and uh, witchcraft and all the things that um, kind of excite children. Um, and uh, my own daughter, for example, loved it. I remember when she was in primary school, I went along to talk about Macbeth and I brought some um, uh, decapitated heads from the prop store at the Globe and they just loved it and I thought I was going to traumatize them but they actually just couldn't stop talking about it and drew lots of pictures of Macbeth um, so uh, she's right <laughs> absolutely so Sandra perhaps the takeaway message from tonight is you're never too young to introduce your children to Shakespeare's Macbeth <laughs> yes I think this is entirely true and as people have been saying it's the witches and the violence that get them, I think, and both of those things are right there at the start of the play. Uh, and even if we want to complicate it and find other nuances in it, uh, which obviously there are, um, these are the things initially that would, would draw children in. Well, I think that's an excellent note on which to end our discussion tonight of William Shakespeare's Macbeth, a fascinating insight into one of William Shakespeare's greatest tragedies. My thanks to my brilliant panel of experts, Professor Sandra Clark, Professor Emerita of Renaissance Literature at the Institute of English Studies at the University of London, Dr. Abigail Rokeson Woodall, Senior Lecturer in Shakespeare and Theatre at the University of Birmingham and also Deputy Director of the Shakespeare Institute, uh, Professor Farah Kareem Cooper, Professor of Shakespeare Studies at King's College London and Director of Education at Shakespeare's Globe Theatre and of course we also heard from Professor Emma Smith Professor of Shakespeare Studies at Hartford College Oxford and that does bring us to the end of another edition of Talking History my thanks to my producer Marisa Sullivan to Shannon Murphy on research and to Peter Malloy on sound we've got more debate and discussion next week so hope you can join us then we've been Talking History Good night.